We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from IG Private Wealth Management. You can call now and leave a message. They will return your call, 905-529-7165. And don't forget the website, andyanddon.com. That's andyanddon.com. You can ask a question there via the listener inquiry button, as well listen to old archive shows. Good morning, gentlemen. Good to see you all. Good, Good morning. Morning, everybody survived. Uh spring forward daylight saving <laughs> yeah after do you know, ever notice that after every time change there's always a big debate as to whether yeah. we should do it or not i don't i don't because everybody <laughs> hates, about hates the later. change and then a and week later of course statistically right you get in people have more accidents and everything else because yeah. we're all a little bit sleep deprived yeah that's true anyway, right. anyway. Ho- hopefully you're not too sleep deprived this morning <laughs> <laughs> all right the birth of a bull market yes. it sounds painful <laughs> <laughs> I never thought of it that way. It's Scott, a breach. <laughs> yeah. oh, and it was actually extremely painful, um, the birth of the bull market, because that was literally 10 years ago when the bottom of the Great Recession happened. Mm-hmm. 10 years was March 9th. Um, so just uh, not long ago. March 9th, 2009 was the very bottom mm-hmm. of the Great Recession. And it was interesting. You know, going back, it really didn't start. It, it started... Kind of more like big dips in September with Lehman Brothers and other mm. big companies went under. But really, the Canadian stock market actually started declining in 2007. The bank stocks of our, our, our banks, uh, the Canadian banks, actually hit their peak in 2007. Mm-hmm. And then were slowly falling throughout 2008. And then they took massive tumbles right. um, going into 2000 and later part of 2008. So you look at to November 2008, and by that time it had already had a few big drops, and it was like headlines at the time. At the time, said cheap stocks that no nobody wants, mm. and it, this is still the early portion of it. But there were some big drops back then. For example, the stock market in Canada dropped nine percent on November 20th, mm. just not one day, nine percent. We don't even see individual stocks drop nine percent very often. Like that's a big drop if something happens that much. Never mind the whole stock market, and the S and P five hundred, the U.S. stock market, closed that in uh, November. I think it was November twentieth, two thousand and eight, at eleven year lows. That means if you had put your money in eleven years later, you hadn't made anything. Maybe yeah. a dividend, okay, but that's about it. So you know Berkshire. Now Warren Buffett is uh, kind of. You know, has the golden touch, as they always said, or the Midas touch, as the papers were saying back then. And his particular company dropped 50%. And this is, again, in, no- in November 2008. We haven't hit the bottom yet. Mm. What's it? I think, it, what is it? The Oracle of Omaha. There you That's go. <laughs> exactly. That's his nickname. You're right. And he said, and I quote, unemployment will rise. Business, business activity will falter. And headlines will continue to be scary. So what I've, I've, been, I've decided... I've been buying U.S. stocks. Yeah, I was just gonna b- about to ask you, is that what if you had bought on those days? You, uh, and we'll get to that actually, yeah, Scott, yeah. you're going to see tremendous growth at that time. So here it is, in the face of all this terrible news, um, unemployment was rising significantly, mm-hmm. okay? And every paper, front page, in CNN at the time, I don't know if you remember, but we actually nicknamed it, and you were, we're all, we were around 10 years ago, Scott. Mm-hmm. It's hard to believe it's been 10 years, but, yeah. and we, we called CNN at the time constant negative news. Yeah. Because every day it was, people were watching it 
Kind of like they're watching tr- Trump, to be honest, right now. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's like a bit of a soap opera. What will he tweet today? Yeah. 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 And back then it was, what will be the headline today about the markets? Mm-hmm. So totally different. And uh, he went on to say, I haven't the faintest idea whether stocks will be higher or lower in a month or a year from now. What is likely, however, the markets will move higher, perhaps substantially, well before the sentiment or the economy turns up. So what he said basically is the markets will rise way before you see the headlines start talking about good news. Yeah. And so March 9th, 2009, the S&P 500 was 676 units, if you right. will. Um, I, what are they at now? Points, I guess. Oh, 2000. Yeah. Around 2000 now. So, you know, it's substantially higher now. They were the lowest since 1996, as I mentioned. Every press was negative. Now, I remember on that particular day, the uh, the page normally papers, as you know, are black white paper with black writing. Mm-hmm. That particular day, it was black paper yeah. with white writing yeah. as the head paper, yeah. as the head, Headline. as the front page. Yeah. And it was like, still, no end in sight. This could be a decade-long recession. Mm-hmm. We can't see the markets recovering for at least 10 years. And it was going on and on. This is near the time or on the day of March the 9th. So it's interesting. We kept telling clients at the time, there won't be bells that are going to go off saying, you know, it's the time. The <laughs> markets are down. Yeah. Oh, sorry. The S&P 500 is 2795 right now. Mm. So at the time, it was 676. Mm-hmm. In fact, it's over 2,000 points higher yeah. than what it was on that day. Wow. It's, uh, it's hard to believe. It's, it's, it's basically fivefold, mm-hmm. uh, four, fourfold, four and a half. So economists um, actually at the time predicted, and these are smart people. Mm-hmm. These aren't dummies. And this one, what made it even harder is economists said the S&P would falter all the way down to 600 mm-hmm. on that time. The news continued to remain grim. It was awful news. And unemployment continued to rise throughout that year. And by October 2009, it had gone all the way to 10% mm-hmm. unemployment. Now, here we are a, a decade later, and we actually are, people are, companies are having a hard time finding workers. Yeah, It's gone 100% the other way, mm-hmm. where it's like, okay, where do we find good quality help? Um, un- unemployment rates are around the 3% area right now. Mm-hmm. And I know, I don't know about you, but in university, I remember them talking about 4% unemployment yeah. as being full employment. Yeah. Because there's always people looking for jobs mm-hmm. and aren't employable. Mm-hmm. So there's that 4% swing that you say, okay, that's a healthy economy if you're around 4%. It's, it's well under that now. <laughs> Which kind of uh, as a sidebar, I just heard driving in how uh, Canadian debt is so high mm-hmm. yeah. that one in five Canadians would literally have to sell an asset in the next year they, they, ex- they expect mm-hmm. to pay, to try to get out of debt. Mm-hmm. So even though the markets, economy, employment is so has has done so well in the last 10 years we are not really good at managing money okay yeah, yeah. We, we have a lot of money coming in but we can't seem to handle it well within the year of 2009 the the stock market was up 68% so you imagine going back to to that time when the markets were were going down and you see all this negative news so you know what i'm going to do i'm going to park the money yeah i'm going to put it on the sidelines and I'll wait till the news gets better. And this is exactly what Warren Buffett said. The news isn't going to be better. The market will probably rise substantially before the news gets better. Mm-hmm. Well, sure enough, within a year, the market was up 68%. Mm-hmm. So had you pulled your money out, 
you lost 68% opportunity cost. Right. Plus, yeah. it had already gone down. Right, yeah. Okay. Yeah. And I unfortunately did have a couple of clients, two of them. I had, in total, I had five clients that I could not talk off the ledge. Right. <laughs> okay. Right. Two of them happened to pull their money out on the same day, March the 9th. Oh, mm-hmm. my. On the day. Yeah. I had one on that exact same day, too. Yeah. And I said, okay, you couldn't have timed it any worse. And you know what? Unfortunately, the banks, they were really encouraging anybody to go buy GICs. Yeah. Flight to safety. Flight to safety. Oh, this is too risky, Mr. and Mrs. Client. You should take your money out of that and move it into a a safe GIC. Not thinking that they're just crystallizing that loss they just had. Yeah. But again, they're also reading the papers. There was no good news. There was no, it was hard. Actually, as financial planners, Andy and I had our work cut out for us because People started looking at us like we're crazy. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Now it's odd that you use those so, those same people that left as examples during your seminars. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. You're <laughs> right. How bizarre is that? <laughs> I, and I've actually worked it out that had they stayed in, yeah. they would have done financially very fine, no problem. They would not run out of money if they lived to 100. Yeah. And I've used that same person as an example that would have moved their money in at 2% or less. Mm-hmm. But even at 2%, GIC is locking in that loss. They would have already run out of money now. Yeah. 10 years later, they mm-hmm. are now out of money mm-hmm. because now they have you know, a third less money to work with, getting a lower return, mm-hmm. not getting any of that uptick yeah. that they would have had if they just left it alone. Mm-hmm. And it was so stressful. I had a couple of clients actually suffer from depression, had to go see a doctor yeah. because they see their money going down. Yeah, yeah. And it, it was very tough. I guess the news, what the, the really the, what the advice was, was just stop watching the news. Yeah, yeah. It yes. doesn't do any Don't good. open your statements. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> <clears throat> if it's going to affect you negatively, which I think it does almost anybody, but if it's going to impact you that much, just forget it happens. Yeah. Now, it's easy for us to say in hindsight, mm-hmm. but at the time living through this, it was far more difficult. Yeah. And so even though the markets were running through this, uh, this good uptick in the, in, there seemed to be a lot of questions. Can it keep going? And then, <laughs> so it moves from fear to greed. <laughs> yeah. Or it's going to go back down again. Yeah, yeah. Okay. This, and what they had is again, very smart people that were quotables and their analysts, economists, PhDs said, well, after a year of a rebound, it usually results in a stock, mar- a stock market bubble. Mm-hmm. And what we'll find out is it tends to follow by lengthy periods when stocks trade at deep discounts. So they're warning people, even though it went up 68%, hey, it's going to go back down. Mm-hmm. So don't go back in. Mm-hmm. And this was now the new theme. Okay, it was just, that's all fluff. It's not, it's not going to last. So all these money ratios, people have these ratios of, it's still too expensive to go in now. It's going to go back down. And then it was the big talk about the double dip. Remember that, Scott? Mm. Where the market went up and that was the, and it's going to come right back down for another dip. Right, right. Uh, the double dip. And that was the big buzzword at the time, back into a recession. Mm-hmm. We had the Greek crisis at the time and European mm-hmm. uh, mo- monetary issues were going on. So the U.S. stock market wasn't doing great. Canada looked pretty good. Um, but mainly because of their banks. Mm-hmm. The banks looked pretty good at the time. So Canada actually covered the quickest, okay? So here we are. And again, what we always talk about is asset allocation, Andy and I, trying to get the right allocation and rebalancing it. Mm-hmm. You, you try to rebalance into the U.S. stock market or any stock market back when they were down 30%. Nobody wanted to do it. Yeah. Had they have moved their fixed <clears throat> income over to the equity area, they would have done so much better. But thankfully, most people, 
and I say the large percent of our clients, left the money at least alone yeah. and allowed it to recover. <coughs> mm-hmm. And there was the odd one that actually added money during those times, and boy, did they ever do well. So you look at this, uh, the S&P and the Toronto stock market, you know, it's not without a straight line. They say it's a 10-year bull market. There's been three negative years along the way since that 10 years in the Toronto stock market, and there's been one negative year in the U.S. market, but there was two years that had a 1% and a 2% return. So even though it's it looks it's not a straight line bull market, there's lots of ups and downs. Um, the biggest thing I can say is is really focus on your asset allocation and stick to the plan. And remember way back when when this was all happening, uh, I don't think people really had a good grasp on how long it was going to take to recover, especially with things like interest rates. Oh yeah, because you know everybody was wondering, uh, you know, is this the you know they're not going to stay this low? They're going to go back up, and then all of a sudden the conversation switched to this is the new norm, and it seemed yes. to be for that decade. It has been for a long time, and you're right. It was the last decade sort of a, a different example than what you can look back uh, in times prior to that? Because it did seem like it was not a traditional dip. Well, it was a decade of low interest rates, yeah. which you know sort of paved the way for economic stability yeah. and trying to bring stability back to the markets. And the whole phrase quantitative easing was created at the time, which mm-hmm. is basically government's creating a lot of flow of cash into the system so that people, they could lend money and make it available and continue to expand the economy or stabilize it at least anyway. All right. We are planning your financial future. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from IG Private Wealth Management. You can call now and leave a message at 905-529-7165 and check out the website at andyanddon.com. We're coming right back. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from IG Private Wealth Management. Call now. Leave a message. They'll return your call at 905-529-7165. And take a peek at the website, andyanddon.com. That's andyanddon, all one word, dot com. And they will, uh, you can communicate with them via email. All right. Birth of a bull market is what we're talking about right now. Yes. And so what, what we've gone here, there's, is, this is such a big deal that they actually made a movie over this. Mm. You know, the big short. Mm-hmm. And it was all, and a lot of had to do with these toxic loans that started in the States. Yeah. And they were spread throughout the world. Mm-hmm. Think, uh, com- uh, countries like Iceland, literally, they almost went bankrupt mm-hmm. because of, they were buying so many of these for their own, for their own investments. Mm-hmm. So- we all know the cause, it's, you know, in, the, in retrospect, it looks so common sense, but greed took over and, you know, these very toxic kind of investments where you're basically, there's all sorts of acronyms, ninja loans, mm-hmm. which were no income, no job, no assets. Yeah. Um, and there's all these different acronyms of all these people getting loans and yet the market was still going up at yeah. the time. And it was all fueled by these very lending at very, to almost anybody. Right. So come on, on the re- reverse, all of a sudden, everything started to go down, including all our banks. And this was the interesting part. Our banks did not go through the same, went through a lot more scrutiny in terms of what they invested in yeah. than almost any place in the world. Mm-hmm. So our banks were like the golden childs mm-hmm. of investments. But it, at the time, it didn't matter what you were, everything went down. Yeah. We said, you know what, we're going to knock down every stock in the, on the planet and we'll find out which ones are actually good yeah, later. Yeah. It's kind of what they did. They didn't look at earnings. They didn't look at anything. Every stock went down. So put it in perspective, on March 10th, RBC, this is one day after the kind of the bottom. Mm-hmm. In one day, 
RBC went up 14% hmm. one day. Hmm. This is not a penny stock. This is our Royal Bank of Canada. Yeah. Now, all the big five banks have did extremely well. And I know our- The next day. Uh, all the, the next yeah. day, but actually within a year, yeah. they, they went up tremendously. And to the point that it's almost been a bit of a fault because they've really, on the recovery side, they've contributed to almost half of the growth of our Toronto stock market. Mm -hmm. So five stocks have contributed over the last 10 years of half the growth. So if you owned the Toronto stock market um, back in 2009, the bottom, here we are 10 years later, you would have had a triple your money mm -hmm. if you bought the index yeah. on that day. If you just bought the banks, you had five and a half times your money. Hmm. So you can see how much they had an influence on yeah. the overall health. Of, if it wasn't for the banks, the overall stock market wouldn't have gone up triple. It would have mm. only gone up maybe not even double. Yeah. Okay. So the whole point is, is it, <coughs> to the point that clients, and I, I know Andy and I have talked, so well, I should just buy the bank stocks. Mm -hmm. And that is extremely, I don't know, I would say very narrow and risky because you're looking at Canada as a whole, and Canada represents only 2% of the world's stock market. And then you're saying, okay, now I'm only going to buy about a third of 2%. Right. <laughs> so yeah. you're getting less than 1% of the world's stock market, and you're saying, that's what you're going to buy? That's not diversified. That is not diversified. And mm -hmm. that that showed its head last year, mm -hmm. where all the banks had a, the most, a far more dramatic um, downdraft in mm -hmm. terms of their stock market mm -hmm. performance. In fact, they were down about 12% last year. So... At the end of the day, it still comes down to what can we learn from all this, you know? And it really comes down to, one is to have a financial advisor that's saying, okay, and that's great to hold your hand and uh, give you the right scenario of investments, but why would you not want a financial planner to see how do you do things, not only on the f investment side, mm -hmm. but also what, to, what opportunities can we do? What about tax loss selling? Uh, is it a good time to crystallize losses and then buy them back again? Mm -hmm. um, is there opportunities when there is a market downdraft like we had? And so there's so much to to grasp with this. But the biggest thing is humans are humans. We just had a little drop in December. And guess what? There is more money coming out of investments than going in. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. In one month. So here we are 10 years later. And we still try to time the market. We still get scared when the market goes down. Right. And we still get greedy when it goes up. Mm -hmm. And that's right in our DNA. We are not wired to make money. And this massive um, great recession was an example of it. But we are even seeing it all the time throughout the year. And this is why it's so good to have somebody by your side to keep you on track. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's funny. I was just thinking about um, that, that time period in 2008 and 2009. And one of the other strategies as financial planners we were looking at is where do you get your income? Mm -hmm. And that's an important factor. Mm -hmm. You know, it, anybody who was still working and not retired, it was, okay, let's, as Don said, keep them from jumping off right. the cliff, uh, off the ledge. And at the same time, but those that were already retired yeah. and in the decumulation, decumulation right. phase, what do you do? Mm -hmm. And, um, so one of the key strategies was looking at a, a balanced portfolio. Somebody might have 60% stocks, 40% bonds, and being able to alter where someone is taking their income from because you don't want to sell low, no. you want to buy low. Mm -hmm. So when the stocks are down, you do not want to be selling them on a monthly basis to generate right. an income from your RIF. Uh, so we would switch over to the fixed income component of someone's portfolio mm -hmm. and only draw money from that area that is still holding its own. 
Right. And then, as Don said, after one year, stocks came back up 68%. So then it was time to switch back to a balanced withdrawal strategy. So mm. just even small things like that can mm-hmm. really help people in terms mm. of their overall net worth. So one of the <laughs> interesting talking about, um, you know, bank stocks, but et cetera, but one of the key things that people kind of love to fall into uh, love with is is dividend producing investments. And um, I uh, met with a prospect this week and we were talking about uh, their investment advisor at one of the banks saying, well, now that you're getting close to retirement, we're going to switch you over so that you have more dividends in your portfolio because that will be able to generate an income for you as you begin to take money out of your investments. Uh, and so I thought about that. I thought, well, in the absence of a plan that actually can project forward and predict yeah. and predict yeah. where are you going to be, where, where is your cash going to come from? Mm-hmm. One of the key things that was an issue with that, that um, strategy was old age security clawback. And, uh, and it reminded me of another client that, um, recently trying to fix the same problem with, and just to give listeners a sort of bit of a background in this situation, uh, like, like many clients who, uh, this woman is now 80 and a widow. And, uh, you know, when her husband was alive, they, he had a pension and she had a pension. And of course they were able to split income between the two of them. And so they were able to avoid any OES clawbacks at the time. And so he had died about uh, three years ago. And once, uh, when one of your, one spouse dies, there's a survivor pension that continues on in this case to her. And of course she continued to receive her own pension. Mm -hmm. And then all of the investments that they had, which were either jointly owned or case of riffs individually, but now they're all in one person's name. Mm -hmm. So she now has an investment portfolio over a million dollars and the uh, 700,000 of that was in non-registered investments, producing dividends, et cetera. And the other 300,000 was in between RIFs and her TFSA plan. So no taxation issues there uh, in general. So we zeroed in on her non-registered investments and that 700,000 was producing a dividend rate of about three and a half percent. So it was about $25,000 per year. And so when we've looked at her pension incomes now, so the survivor pension from her deceased husband, her own pension, her Canada pension plan, and her old age security, the total, she had about 47,000 in pensions. She had about 13,000 a year of Canada pension plan and another 7,000 a year of old age security. So that totaled 67,000 the threshold where you start to get lose some of your old age security is 77,000. There was about a 10,000 of room here so that she can still avoid it. Well, in looking at her dividend income on that portfolio of 700,000, there was $25,000 of dividends. And here is the biggest issue with dividends for someone over age 65. And that is what's called the dividend gross up. And the dividend gross up is an artificial increase or ballooning of your income received in the form of dividends. And the purpose of that is to equalize the amount of tax that's paid by, uh, some taxes paid by the corporation that earned it. So if you owned a bank stock, Mm -hmm. they pay tax, you get a dividend, which is part of their profits, and then you have to pay tax. So in integrating our tax system between corporations and personal tax, 
they didn't want to, we don't want to create a double taxation right. system. So the dividend gross up and tax credit system was created and it works very well, except in this situation. So the dividend gross up is 38%. So her, she received $25,000 of dividends. She now has to artificially include another $9,500 of income that will factor into her OAS clawback. Mm-hmm. So her total income, her total dividends and taxable dividends was 34500 plus her 67000 from her pensions, etc. So her total income was $101,000 uh, last year. <clears throat> and so the, th- the 77,000 threshold, that's where you start losing your old age security. So she had 24,000, <clears throat> pardon me, 24,000 of income subject to the 15% clawback right. of her old age security. So that represents uh, $3,600. So basically she's losing about just over 50% of her old age security. And uh, 1,500 of that is just due to the, uh, the dividend gross up. So this artificial number. So like a lot of Canadians uh, that have saved hard, uh, worked hard, and been disciplined and diligent, she feels she's being penalized for having done a good job. <laughs> yeah. And so the answer, the question was, what can we do to, to, get, to get my OAS back and avoid the clawback? So the, the, the issue then is how to reduce her dividends or change that to another form of income so she doesn't have to pay as much tax. And uh, she didn't need the income, the dividends, so that that was one part of a piece of the puzzle. And so the first thing we look at then is how much tax is she paying each year? How much is her old age security clawback each year? And then what does the future look like going forward, not only in terms of actual income and taxes and clawbacks, but also when she dies? So we have to look at not only her net worth while she's alive, but also her net worth at death because the tax man cometh in terms of any capital gains and everything. So all things being equal, the best way to measure the success of any strategy is what happens if we kill you off. (laughs) It sounds terrible, but uh, it sounds kind of cruel, but that's at the end of the day, that's a pure, true measurement of where you end up with after taxes, everything else is paid. So we looked at... um, her from age 80 to 95. And the first thing I looked at is if you do nothing. <clears throat> so you just leave everything status quo, just bite the bullet, continue to pay, uh, lose your old age security. In fact, it's going to get worse as the right. dividends grow. And we found out that her net worth would be at age 95 by doing nothing, 2980000 2980000 So then the next step to look at is what happens if we sell off part of that $700,000 portfolio that's producing dividends, convert it to another type of investment that has a very low level of dividends and more growth. So same rate of return. And we were, the the assumption on the rate of return was six and a half percent, three and a half percent was dividends and 3% was growth. That was her current situation. The new investment was going to be same rate of return, 6.5%, but only 1% dividends, 5.5% would be growth, increase in the value over time. Same risk profile as well. So the next thing that we looked at then is how much of that investment can we sell? And by the way, on that 700,000, there was a $90,000 capital gain. 
So if she sold the whole thing, yeah. she'd have to include uh, 90000 of capital gain, half of that taxable, 45000 So then we looked at three scenarios. What if we sold uh, a quarter of it? What if we sold half of it? Or what if we sold all of it and put those into this new investment that produces less dividends? And then we measured her taxes and her net worth. And so if she sold 25% of the stake, so about 175 grand, that meant her income, sorry, her net worth at 95 would increase, actually increase to 3 million and 3,000. So an increase of 23,000 bucks. But she would have to pay about another $6,000 and lose all of her old age security this year to do that. Right. So option two, sell 50%, 350000 of the 700000 portfolio, put that into the new investment. Well, her net worth at 95 went to 3026000 It went up again. Mm-hmm. And that's an increase of 46000 over the do-nothing approach. Her taxes went up quite a bit too, up uh, about $13,000 over her current year taxes. And then the final scenario, sell all of this dividend-producing investment, all 700000 pay the tax on the 90000 capital gain, and now move it into the new investment. And her net worth at age uh, 95 at that, under that scenario was going to be 3 million. 104,000. So an increase of about 124,000 over the next 15 years over the do nothing approach. And so it's pretty significant in terms of the dollar amounts, all Mm -hmm. things being equal. Her tax bill though, and this is the only part that sort of holds people back a little bit handcuffed is the fact that she's now going to have to pay $40,800 of tax this year Mm -hmm. versus her normal tax bill, which is about 17 grand. So it's an extra 23,000 of tax that she has to pay this year. And of course, lose all of her old age security, but it's a one-time hit. Mm -hmm. It's factored into all of these scenarios this extra tax that has to be paid right. and, and still it, paying inev- that she comes out further ahead. Inevitably she's going to pay that tax sometime anyway. That's right. That's so right. it's just, you're paying it now versus later and you get all those benefits. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, um, OAS clawback and dividend income there, it's the devil, it's a double-edged sword. And I think that in the absence of a plan, you've got to be really careful in terms of increasing the amount of dividends you have because you're going to end up with more clawbacks. The capacity to look at a plan, be able to project forward and run some what-if scenarios is the key to understanding what is your best option. Mm. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from IG Private Wealth Management. Call now, 905-529-7165. They'll return your call and check out the website at andyanddon.com. We're coming right back. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from IG Private Wealth Management. You can call now and leave a message at 905-529-7165 and check out the website at andyanddon.com. We're talking about retirement planning with an older spouse. Yes. Or a younger spouse, whichever way you want to look at it. Right. Glass half full, glass half empty, I guess. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> but uh, you know what? It's it's interesting. Um this is coming up a lot more. You're, you're finding, of course, with divorce rates, mm-hmm. the second marriage, often there may be an age difference. Mm-hmm. And it could have been the first marriage. You know, you're seeing that also, but less of an age difference often. Uh, but, you know, you're, there's a lot of options you have available in terms of what do you do 
with your RSPs, your OAS, your Canada Pension Plan, uh, as Andy was mentioning, the old age security, perhaps even TFSAs. Like what are your, what game plan could you follow? Mm -hmm. And first of all, once you're over 65, you can income split with a younger spouse. Okay. You can or you can? You can. You can. You can right. split the income. So if you're making out of your riff and he or she is, is say, I don't know, 10 years younger and she, he or she's 55 and you're getting 40,000 a year out of your riff, you can put 20 or less mm -hmm. into the other person's name. Right. So you can income split as soon as the first person turns 65. Now, if you have a defined benefit plan from a, some, any kind of pension, that starts at 55, you mm -hmm. can start income splitting. Right. So it does give you that option. That's done right on the tax return, but this is where you should always file your tax returns together. Mm -hmm. Because if even if you're using a tax program, it's only as good as the information that they know of each taxpayer. Right. So you really need to file those together. Um, the other part of with a RIF payment, and now a RIF, a registered retirement income fund, is simply where you put your RSPs. Mm -hmm. So it's just like an RSP, except now you have to take an income from it. And a lot of people think you have to wait till 71 to move it into that, mm -hmm. where in fact, it's actually, that's the limit. That's where you have to. Mm -hmm. Okay, when you turn 71, the year you turn 71, by December 31st of that year, you must move your RSP into a RIF. Right. Okay. So the first payment doesn't have to happen until the following year when you turn 72. Mm -hmm. So, but you do have the option that that can be based on your age or the younger spouse, the minimum payment. Mm -hmm. So if you're 71, the minimum payment is 5.26%. Right. That's the, you, you have to take out that much. But let's say your, your spouse is 60. Well, then it would be 3.33%. So that means you, can, you don't have to take quite as much payout out of it. And this might be the difference of having your old age security clawed back or not. Mm -hmm. Okay, as Andy just mentioned, uh, there's, we try our best to everything possible to get your old age security. And sometimes, like Andy mentioned in his, in his example, sometimes it's better to just write it off for one year right. so that you get it for all the other years mm -hmm. going forward. Mm -hmm. You know, a great, great uh, plan. But also with a RIF, there's options available there within income splitting and also using the younger spouse's age for the minimum payment. Now, there's no disadvantage ever to using the younger spouse's age. Mm -hmm. So if your planner has not suggested this already, change it. You can change it at any time. It doesn't, it will change for the following year. Mm -hmm. You can't do it for the current year. Okay. Is there an advantage to having a younger spouse? In which way? Financially. <laughs> <laughs> Big pause there, Scott. Uh, well, you know, helps with uh, the heavier lifting. <laughs> So, you know, it's <laughs> the chores around the, the chores house, around the house <laughs> cutting the lawn, you know, no, it's, uh, it's from a financial standpoint, there's lots of options available. And, you know, those people that have a defined benefit plan, they often have choices. Do you take a, th there's usually a default and it's, let's say the default is 60%. Well, you may have to pay more to get a 75% continuation to the younger spouse mm -hmm. or even more for the hundred percent difference. You know, you have to look after the younger spouse. And if that's the case, you, if you're going to live, live to the same age, that's a 10 years difference as an mm -hmm. example. Yeah. Well, you may want to have a hundred percent payout continuing going to the younger spouse. Mm -hmm. You may want to move it up a, a bit. Now, Canada Pension Plan, this is a whole new kettle of fish here, because you can defer your Canada Pension Plan, as we've talked about, all the way to age 70. That might be the way to go if your younger spouse has 
um, a low Canada pension plan. Mm-hmm. Because let's say he or she only was going to get $100 a month Canada pension plan and you're going to get the max. Say, call it 1200 a month. Well, if you wait till 70, you're going to get a 42% increase. So that's going to be about, you'll be up to about 1700 Well, now that will leave you a higher percentage for the survivor that will move to the surviving spouse for the rest of his or her life. Mm-hmm. So putting that off to age 70 often makes sense, but even more so if the younger spouse has not uh, is not receiving much of a Canada pension plan. Right. Now, the other part is a t- tax-free savings account room. Now, we always suggest maximizing the, ca- the tax-free savings account if you can, but most people do it equally. They don't, there's no rhyme or reason. Well, we're going to put, okay, we got 20,000. Uh, we haven't started a TFSA. Let's put 10 in each name. We should really put all 20 in the older spouse's name. Right. Because when that person passes on, at least it goes directly to the younger spouse, no probate, doesn't affect their TFSA room, mm-hmm. no tax. So let's say right now the limit is 63500 and you happen to get a windfall of 63500 you should put that in the older spouse's age. And then upon that person's death, if that person dies before the younger spouse, it will automatically go to the younger spouse and that person still has all their TFSA room. Mm-hmm. So lots of planning that goes on for uh, that age difference between the older and the younger spouse. Now, talk about planning. We will be running a financial planning seminar, not far in the distance future, less than a month away. April 10th, just around the corner. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we're going to be doing two locations, and we're excited about this. Dunder and Castle in the morning, oh, cool. and uh, Russo House in Ancaster in the evening. And the date is? April 10th. April 10th. And yeah. so we're going to be getting going through a lot of these planning issues that we've, we've been talking about on the air, but getting more of the nitty gritty of the numbers. We want to talk about investments and what kind of investment strategies make the most sense right now. We want to talk about estate planning and of course, retirement planning, because everybody wants to retire at some point. And if you want to be a part of the seminar happening on April 10th, give them a call, 905-529-7165. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson, Andy Lister, and Don Fox are here from IG Private Wealth Management. We're coming right back. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson, Andy Lister, and Don Fox are here from IG Private Wealth Management. You can call now and leave a message at 905-529-7165 and check out the website at andyanddon.com. That's andyanddon.com. We're talking about the top 10 non-taxable benefits. Yes. That sounds <laughs> exciting, doesn't it? It does. <laughs> All the little bits of extras that you can earn through your employer and not have to worry about having to pay tax on these extra benefits. Mm -hmm. So this might be something in terms of negotiating a, um, instead of negotiating a pay raise or negotiating additional benefits for yourself, these are the 10 that would be great ideas that can help boost what you get in terms of your overall compensation, but not affect you from a tax perspective. Number one is the cost of education. So in general, if you're if your employer pays for any training or education that's related to your employment, so it could be anything from you know maybe computer training to specific training or, or safety training, any of those types of things, that training is considered primarily for your employer's benefit because they're going to get more productivity out of you. And so therefore, at tax time, there's no value to that benefit. They do not have to include it in your T4, the cost of that education. And of course, um, the nice thing about that is that it's always... Um, uh, valuable in terms of future employment and employability down the road. So always looking for education opportunities is a great idea to improve your overall compensation. Number two, gifts and awards. 
So uh, I know Don's talked about this one a lot, and we and particularly around Christmas time because it's uh, it's a great way to bonus or get a gift to employees. But um, you can do what we call the non-cash gifts, and so your employer is allowed to give. Uh, that non-cash gift award up to a value of $500 or less annually. And uh, in Quebec, it's 1000 bucks. Wow. There you go, bonus. I so I think we that. should lobby Ontario to see yeah, if we can no boost kidding. that to 1000 mm. bucks. And um, if it's over that limit, then you'll definitely get a, t- it'll be part of your T4, but if they keep it under $500, then uh, there's no excess benefit to your T4 slip as well. And that includes tax too. That includes the tax, yes. the HST, absolutely. Gift cards are not an example. Right. Mm. <laughs> Number three is parking costs. And... Uh, you know, I know here in Hamilton, I was just parking downtown Hamilton and what was $10 for a day just went up 20% yeah, to $12, 12 bucks a day, Wow, uh, which was a pretty hefty hike. I don't know who's involved in that decision, but mm, <laughs> we'll yeah. have to talk to somebody. Growing city. I know. Parking costs are increasing and I know at the hospital it's 20 bucks, mm-hmm. so it's significant. Uh, but anyway, parking costs, if you're required to use your car regularly, three or more days each week for work then uh, your employer can provide you with a parking spot and it's a, a non-taxable benefit. And I know, so like for my associate, for example, and I pay for uh, her parking spot and she's out on the road at least three times a, a week visiting right. clients and et cetera, picking up information or, or delivering things. So it's, uh, it's a non-taxable benefit. And um, so, you know, in general, you know, a lot of times you, if you're just going to work, and you work nine to five, and you don't use the car for anything mm-hmm. during the week, then that is not a uh, then that would be a taxable benefit. Right. Transportation okay? to and fro doesn't count. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, recreation club dues number four. So fees paid by your employer for social and athletic clubs are generally tax-free, provided the membership is principally deemed to be for your employer's advantage, not yours. So this can get tricky, you know, obviously things like a golf club membership where you might entertain clients, Mm -hmm. you know, just use that sort of stereotypical type of thing. Um, In general, uh, to the extent that you're taking clients and using it for clients only, then it's not going to be a taxable benefit. And it can be a fairly nice perk depending on the club that you, Mm -hmm. that you're entitled to to join as well. And, um, uh, number five is personal counseling. And if, so if your employer pays for the cost of counseling related to any physical or mental health of your family, you or you, the benefit is generally going to be tax-free as well. And uh, that also includes for financial uh, counseling related to a reemployment or retirement if you require it. Mm-hmm. Retirement can be a stressful thing. Yeah, <laughs> so sure. Any counseling you can get, the better. Uh, number six is mobile phones and internet. So if your employer provides a phone, the cost of the phone is a tax-free benefit. Mm-hmm. A lot of people don't know that. Right. And, uh, but if you provide your own phone and your employer reimburses you for the purchase costs, that amount is taxable. Mm. So it's better just to go on their plan, yeah. take their phone, and stick with it. There's no, no benefit, uh, taxable benefit for, for you. Number seven is loyalty program points. A uh, good friend of mine does a lot of travel for his work. Uh, always uses his card mm. and collects yeah, points, yeah. travel points. If you collect points or air miles on your personal credit card for business travel or expenses that your employer reimburses you, the value of those points will be tax-free, provided that they aren't converted to cash and the points don't 
form part of your remuneration. Right. Um, there is some CRA uh, uh, case on that as well, but basically it depends on how much you have in terms of travel dollars, et cetera. So basically if you're converting it to travel or you're mm-hmm. converting it to merchandise, no problem. Fine, yeah. Don't take it as cash. Number eight is transportation passes. So if you're an employee or, or retired from a bus, subway, airline, or rail company, your transportation passes are tax-free. And uh, if you're an active employee and you travel on a on a space confirmed, not standby basis, then it is taxable. So, and anybody, any family members, if you get reduced uh, fares for them, that is a taxable benefit. Right. Okay. Uh, number nine is reimbursed losses. So this was with respect to you having to move. So if you uh, if you had to move to a different area for your job and it's at least 40 kilometers uh, closer to your new work location, your employer can reimburse you for eligible housing losses if you have to sell your home at a loss when making the move. That hasn't happened very much around here recently, but uh, the first 15,000 of that benefit is tax-free, and one half of the reimbursement over that amount would be taxable. So it's still a pretty good deal. And finally, number 10 is employee loans. And uh, so if your employer lends you money for any reason, and sometimes this might be particularly in, in, the, in a commission industry where you might get an mm-hmm. advance mm-hmm. that's considered a loan, right. um, that you, uh, if, if to the extent that you pay the interest cost that is equal to or higher than the prescribed rate in the Income Tax Act, uh, which is currently 2%, then um, uh, you won't face any taxable benefit for that loan. Right. So those are your key ones. Uh, tax time's just around the corner. And it's, uh, uh, you know, this is, this is where the rubber hits the mat and yeah. it's time to figure out exactly what are you going to pay in taxes and then what we can do next year to solve pay less. Uh, plug the... Uh, April the, 10th. April 10th. April where? 10th. Dunder and Castle Dunder in the morning. Castle in the morning and Rousseau House in Lancaster in the evening. And if you want to be a part of it, you can give them a call, 905-529-7165 to attend the seminar. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox have been here from IG Private Wealth Management. We have been planning your financial future. Thank you, gentlemen. Have a great week. Thanks, Scott. Thank you, Scott.